The question that the church wants us to ask ourselves uh, during this evening's liturgy is the question that was asked by the person in the village that confronted Jesus in today's gospel reading. He came to Jesus and asked, Lord, will only a few people be saved? So that's the topic of our conversation together this evening. Will only a few people be saved? Will everybody be saved? Will almost nobody be saved? It's a very interesting question. And we begin with a passage from the Old Testament from the prophet Isaiah. And the reason this reading is given to us today is because this passage from Isaiah where God speaks to his people through the prophet tells us that God desires the salvation of all people. So that's a starting point. God desires the salvation of all people. To understand this, we have to understand that the Jews saw themselves as God's chosen people, and they are, they still are today. But that doesn't mean they're the only ones that God desires to save. Sometimes they didn't understand that. They thought since they were God's favored people, they were the only ones that God would save. And so God sent them the prophet Isaiah to speak clearly. And let's look at this reading to understand exactly what the prophet was saying. Speaking for God, he says this. I come to gather nations of every language. They shall come and see my glory. I will send fugitives to the nations. In other words, he'll send some of the Jewish people who, who went outside the country as exiles. They shall proclaim my glory among the nations. They shall bring all your brothers and sisters from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. And then, this is really a surprise. He says, some of these, these non-Jews, these pagans, these Gentiles, some of these I will take as priests and Levites, says the Lord. So not only will God desire the people of all the nations, but he will make them part of the worship of the Jews because the priests and the Levites were the ones responsible for Jewish worship in the temple. So this was a rather shocking idea, I think, for the people who heard the prophet Isaiah speak but he was speaking for God and saying very clearly that God desires the salvation of who? Everyone. That's the beginning point of our reflections. We go to today's gospel reading, a passage from the Gospel of St. Luke. So Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem and he's instructing his disciples on the way. So these are lessons he's giving to those who wanna be his followers. It's a lesson that he wants to give to us who want to be his followers in today's world. So someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? I think he was presuming that the answer would be yes, that only a few are going to be saved. But like so many cases in the Gospels, when Jesus is asked a question, he doesn't give a clear answer. He tells a story. He answered them, strive to enter through 
the narrow gate. For many, I tell you, will attempt to enter, but will not be strong enough. Now, Jesus seems to be saying that not everybody's going to be saved, that the way to salvation is a narrow gate, and many will not be strong enough to enter into it. So uh, we know from the first reading that God desires a salvation of everyone, and here Jesus seems to be putting an obstacle in the path of everybody being saved. It's interesting to understand the word that Jesus used here. He says, strive to enter the narrow gate. The word strive in Greek is agonisti, which means to agonize. That's where our word agony comes from. So to strive doesn't mean to give it a try. You know, it means to, with strength and with concern, with anguish, with anxiety, get to work at entering the narrow gate. In other words, take this seriously to the point of agonizing over it. And Jesus goes on to say, After the master of the house has arisen and locked the door, then you will stand outside knocking and saying, Lord, open the door for us. He will say to you in reply, I don't know where you're from. And you will say, we ate and drank in your company and you taught in our streets. Then Jesus will say to you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And there'll be wailing and grinding of teeth when they see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the, you know, the patriarchs of the Jewish people in the kingdom of God with all these people from the, the, the foreign countries and they themselves will be left outside. And he closes, he closes his reflection by saying, behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Now let's try to analyze all of that. We know that God is love. God is nothing but love. The church doesn't say God loves us. The church does say that, but the church doesn't say God is a loving person. What the church say is God is love. It doesn't say God loves, loves, God is love. In other words, there's nothing about God, nothing at all about God that is not love. And that means that his relationship with you and with me, with everybody here and everybody in the world, is a relationship of love. We learned that in the first reading, that God desires the salvation of all people. So we also know that God, because he loves us, wanted us to be free so that we could love him in return. So God gave us freedom, because you can't love without freedom. If you don't have freedom, if you love someone, it's because you're forced to love them, you know. So love is essentially associated with the notion of freedom. To love somebody means you choose to do that. Since God gave you and I freedom and wants us to love him, 
we can say yes or no. And the answer to the question, how many will be saved, depends on whether the answer you give to God's invitation to love him is yes or no. And love is a very particular kind of thing. It's a choice. It's not something that happens automatically. It's about a real relationship and not a formal relationship. Many of us could be like the people in this gospel story. We come to church on Sunday. We're in the presence of Jesus all the time. We hear the scriptures, but we never choose to love him. We're formally Catholics, but not truly believers. We don't have a relationship of love in our relationship with Jesus. So we could stand in his presence at the end of our lives and say to him, as they said to him in this gospel, well, you know, we, we, we heard you speaking. We ate with you. We shared the Eucharist with you. And Jesus could say to us, as he said to them, I, I don't know you because he doesn't know us because we don't know him because we haven't chosen to enter through the narrow gate. And the narrow gate is not a hard gate. He's not saying that the gate is hard. He says it's narrow. And the narrowness is it's a gate of personal responsibility in our relationship with Jesus, that we personally choose to love him and to be his disciples. And if we know him, but we don't choose to do that, we don't choose to love him, then there's no way that God can welcome us into his presence because he respects our freedom. So this scripture readings today are, are a lesson to us to get busy about making commitments to Jesus and his teachings in our lives. Or we might be outside the gates. Are you willing to do that? Now, of course, you wouldn't be here on Sunday evening when so many of the people in the world did not go to church unless Jesus was at least a somewhat serious part of your lives. But there's times in our lives when we decide to go the broader way rather than the narrow gate, narrow door of personal responsibility. So, as you face your personal judgment about whether you're going to be received into the presence of God at the end of your life, it's important to avoid two things. One of those things is presumption. That is to presume that we're going to be saved. You know, presumption is um, a sin against the virtue of hope. Now, presumption is thinking that God will show mercy even if we don't desire conversion for ourselves that what we do doesn't make any difference, you know. That's presuming that we're going to be saved. Or it's also uh, presuming that God will not respect our freedom. And even if we don't choose to love him, that we're doesn't make any difference, we're going to be saved. Now, we have to avoid presuming salvation, although we acknowledge the fact that God desires the salvation of all people. The second thing we need to avoid um, is the sin of, against hope, which is the sin of despair, which is thinking that no matter what 
God desires, we're not going to be saved. I think the sin of against, uh, the sin of presumption is more common than the sin of despair in today's world. But there's some of us who are anxiety filled and because we're so full of anxiety and, and we don't like ourselves very much, we're very tempted perhaps to despair, which is not to believe that we're worthy of God's love and of salvation. And that's not, uh, uh, that doesn't correspond at all with the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the scripture. So we, we, need, to make, we need to make a commitment in our liturgy this evening to enter through the narrow gate which is a gate of personal responsibility in our relationship with God. Now, I'd like to reflect just a brief, brief moment on today's second reading from the letter to the Hebrews, because this reading helps us understand how bad things happen to good people and to somewhat understand the problem of evil in the world. In some ways, I think the problem of evil is the the greatest motivator for those who call themselves atheists. And they, they say, how can there be a good God when babies die of cancer, for example? Or how can there be a good God when I love my husband with all my heart and all my strength and he's run off and, in a, and is in a relationship with another? Um, how, do, how can God be good and allow that to happen? Now, there's all kinds of evil in our world and in our personal lives. And it's always a struggle to try to understand how that's compatible with the idea that God loves us and wants to save us. And so Jesus has sent us teachings in the scriptures about that. And one of the teachings is this passage from the letter of St. Paul to the Hebrews. And he says here, brothers and sisters, have you forgotten the exhortation addressed to you as children? And then he goes on to quote an Old Testament passage from the book of Proverbs, uh, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, which reads this way. My son, do not disdain the discipline of the Lord. That means, you know, don't get in the way of the discipline that the Lord wants to bring into your life. Do not lose heart when we prove by him for whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son he acknowledges. Now, ladies, this includes you, you know, in the Old Testament, especially in, in passages like this from the book of Proverbs, uh, the male language is used, but it applies equally to daughters and sons. He goes on to say, endure your trials and whatever the trials you might have in your life, your anxieties, your fears, um, your disappointments, endure your trials as discipline. God treats you as sons. And what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? Now, how many of you are fathers? If you just raise your hands, I see some in the front rows here, so. You know, your son, when you discipline your children, they don't generally like it. But I think generally when you discipline your children, you do it because you want them to understand and to be better, to deal with life in a realistic kind of way and not to be spoiled and self-centered. 
And no matter how many times they tell you that they don't like it, if it's really good for them, if you're a good father, you insist on the discipline, right? Well, the Lord has taken that experience from our human families as an example to explain to us on why it is that there is suffering in the world for those of us who are serious about our relationship with God. We need to see those disappointments as a form of discipline, not to punish us, but to make us strong and clear in our commitments. Now, for example, if you have an illness and it's something you wish would go away and it doesn't go away, if you accept that illness as a discipline to make you stronger, it probably will. It doesn't mean it's going to go away, but you become a better person because you are able to deal with pain or anxiety in a way that shows courage and clear commitment. And if, I think if we, if we kind of exercise this in our lives in a daily fashion, we would understand in a much uh, more personal way uh, the activity of God in our lives through our sufferings that come our way. And the greatest example of this, of course, is Jesus' death on the cross. I mean, here is the Son whom the Father allows to suffer on the cross. It looked like it was an empty act without result, but it led to our salvation. And if that's true about Jesus' death on the cross, it's true about the exercise of discipline in our own lives as we receive the sufferings that come our way. So there, you know, bad things do happen to good people. It's not a sign that God is punishing us. God doesn't want us to suffer, but God wants us to be good. And God takes the occasion of the sufferings that come into our life to invite us to a deeper relationship of discipleship. It's part of this narrow path, you know. To be a, to be a Christian is not easy. It's not painful necessarily, but it's never easy. It's always a life of discipline, of the taming of the self in order to give ourselves away in love to God and to one another. May the Lord give us the strength in our liturgy today to enter life through the narrow path. Amen.